You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Thank you guys for being with us. I know the weather's a little crazy today. Um, Those of you joining us online, thank you for tuning in. Um, We're praying that uh, everybody stays safe during the the coming storm and um, that we can uh, just to kind of devote ourselves to the Lord during this hour and then make it home before uh, before the bad weather hits. And so um, obviously if you guys need anything during the storm, um, find yourself in any kind of uh, power outage or anything like that, uh, please get in touch with the church. Let's see how we can help one another. Um, we're going to be in First Peter chapter 1. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up. I do want to draw your attention to one, uh, one announcement um, in particular. Um, as always, we encourage you to download the New Heights app and check the loop and, and what's going on at the church for information. Uh, we are going to have our annual meeting next week. It was supposed to be tonight. Uh, we, we delayed that earlier in the week knowing that there was going to be inclement weather. And so um, I want you to try to block off next Sunday night as well. Uh, We'll have church services, two of them, next week as usual, and then we'll gather on Sunday night for our annual meeting. Um, In the meantime, though, I want to go ahead and call your attention to something else on the New Heights app. We've launched a a sign-up form uh, for women's ministry in 2022. And so if you're a woman, you qualify for this ministry. Sorry, guys. But we're going to be doing an every other week Bible study. Um, Olivia Mead's going to be leading out with that. And the form for you to sign up is already up. We're going to talk more about that and what that looks like at our annual meeting. But um, go ahead and check out that form um, when you get time today. And uh, you can go ahead and sign up for that if you like. And um, I think it's going to be a, a great blessing to the ladies of our church. And there's a conference option at the end of it coming up this summer as well. So please check that out. Talk to Olivia or one of the pastors if you have any questions about that. Okay. Um, last week, Pastor Jeremy covered um, a living hope. As Peter begins his letter, to he addresses it to elect exiles. And as he begins the letter, he, he reminds them of the living hope that they have trusted in. And so as we continue in the letter today, we're going to go all the way through the letter through this series. Um, but um, I'm going to continue in chapter 1. And uh, as, as we've titled the series Hope and Holiness, it, it, we get the, the theme of the letter from the first chapter. And so Jeremy preached about hope last week. Um, I'm going to hone in on holiness uh, today. So if you could think of uh, this week's text and sermon as kind of a holiness for dummies, if you will. Um, you guys have some of those books at your house, maybe, if you ever needed to learn how to do something. They make those for dummies books. Peter kind of gives a quick outline of, of things that, that are imperative for us if we're going to live lives that are holy. Um, he actually gives us six imperatives, and so I have six sermon points today. Um, I'm not going to try to preach a lot longer than I normally do. I normally have two or three points, but, um, but I'm, I'm just grammatically looking at the text, and there are six commands that Peter gives for the church. The first three are imperatives for us personally. The first three are trust grace, don't turn back, and to fear the Lord. Those three commands are given to us by Peter for holiness personally. The second three are given to us for holiness communally. Um, The second three are to love one another, put away sin, and pursue sanctification. And I want you to see how um, we purify and make ourselves holy personally, and then we also do it communally as a church um, in in a life that hopefully is pleasing to God. And so um, if you're not normally a note taker, this would be a great week to take notes because, church, I would love to just call you to this this week. 
Um, with six imperatives in today's message, these would be six really good prayer points for every day this week, Monday through Saturday. Um, that you wake up tomorrow morning and on Monday you say, Lord, teach me how to trust grace fully today. And you continue throughout the week, Monday through Saturday, and pray through these six imperatives on a life of holiness. Okay, Let's look at the first one. Uh, we're called to trust grace. Trust who? Grace, she died 30 years ago, right? You remember that, that joke from the holidays? Um, but the first key to holiness that Peter tells us is to, is to pre- uh, kind of uh, prepare our minds and, and that we would set our minds fully on the grace that God has given us. Um, at our church, we refer to um, our doctrine as lining up with the doctrines of grace. Now, um, what that means is that we continually remind ourselves, using our minds, um, that grace is something that's prevalent in our hearts. Now, this isn't just like a power of positive thinking kind of thing. Um, I I don't want to deliver a kind of a Joel Osteen kind of feel good message for you. Um, On Sundays, you know, our goal is not just to just to make you feel better when you come to church. Matter of fact, if you've been at New Heights very long, you know, sometimes it's quite the opposite. Sometimes the sermons make you feel worse. Um, But in a biblical theology, sometimes feeling worse about ourselves makes us feel better about our God and leads us to lean in and trust more fully on him. And so I'm not just telling you to think positively. I'm telling you to think graciously and have a right understanding of what the gospel has done for you in your life that you trust fully in grace for all of your life. That in all of your mistakes and circumstances that you are reminded that your eternity is not secured by you doing everything just right. That your holiness is not predicated on your works, but rather your holiness is predicated on the one who has made you holy, Jesus Christ. So Peter begins this passage. He says, therefore, referring back to the first 12 verses that Pastor Jeremy preached last week. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so there's an eschatological um, tone to this. He's looking forward to the full redemption that will come when Jesus returns, when we are with Jesus forever. He's saying this will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. And so we should be reminding ourselves daily that we have been redeemed and God will ultimately bring the victory to us. Amen, church? That's good news. That's grace that's been given to you because you didn't deserve to be victorious. You didn't deserve eternal life, but Jesus gave it to you. And so we are told in verse 13 that we are to think about that. We're to use our minds, it says, to prepare our minds for action and to be sober-minded, that we think about this often. That's why on the sermon series graphic, there's a brain on it because we're supposed to think about these things quite often. I've, I've recently discovered that my wife and I think differently. I've talked about this in sermons before also. It's just kind of blown my mind. So y'all know I like to talk, and I've learned that I am what's known as a lexicoder, which means that I have a, a running internal monologue that's going, right? Anybody else like me? You're just like, you hear your voice in your head as you're thinking through stuff. Well, I've learned that my wife doesn't do this. I thought everybody on earth did this. And I learned that my wife doesn't do this. She's what's called an opticoder, which means that she tends to think in images, which means that when she reads a book, she just kind of looks at a paragraph. She sees the keywords somehow. It's like Sesame Street in her brain. I don't know how it all works, but then she can comprehend what's on the page. Well, me, I hear my redneck voice in my head reading the whole thing. And then sometimes I hear two redneck voices in my head and I read it and then I got to reread it because I was listening to the wrong voice. 
All right, that's how that's how my brain works. Um, so so that's even like that's even clued in a little bit of how like Amanda and I have disagreements and fights. It's that kind of like helped us understand how one another think. But however you think, the Bible has a lot to say about how you use your mind. Whether you've got like an internal monologue, which means when you read the Morgan Freeman memes, you actually can hear his voice as you read them, um, or you, you're more like Amanda and an opticoder and you see things, whatever that looks like in your head, I don't need to get inside your head too much, but the Bible does command you that you are to turn your mind toward the gospel frequently. And so when, when we use phrases at church like preach the gospel to yourself, we're not just saying that as a metaphor. We're saying that, that, that if, if you're a lexicoder like me, I want you actually saying to yourself, God has forgiven me for this sin. If you're an opticoder, I don't know how that looks for you, but maybe you visualize forgiveness, whatever that may look like. But you are called in the Bible to set your thoughts fully on grace, not on legalism, not on some kind of shame because God has removed that from you. You set your mind on grace. You trust grace. And you're to be sober-minded. This is why, uh, this is one example why God doesn't want us to be drunk or to be under the influence of substances because when we lose our sobriety, then we, we can't think clearly. And God always wants us thinking clearly so we can think in a right mind. And we see this again throughout the Bible. Romans 12, for example, echoes a very similar sentiment to what Peter is calling us to here when he says, preparing your minds for action Paul writes in Romans 12 that we are to renew our minds um, in spiritual worship. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says that we are to take every thought captive um, to set our thoughts on Christ. Why are we supposed to do this? Why is the Bible so honed in on the way that we think? Why does Jesus, for example, say that it's not just a physical act of adultery or lust, but actually even if you think lust, it's a sin? Why is the Bible so dialed into the way that we think, not just what we do? Well, because action always begins with thought. It always does. So holiness, if you want to be holy as God is holy, like this verse calls us to, then it's also going to have to first be a mindset before it's any kind of action. Um, so we, we trust grace. We have a mindset of trusting grace, which means that we trust that grace covers our mistakes and we actually live in freedom without burden. So we prepare our minds for action, this verse says. Um, in the Greek language, it actually had a, a word picture that was associated with this phrase, and it meant gird up your loins, which is not, you know, I don't typically use that saying a lot. Let's gird up our loins, men, and go do something. But in biblical times, this would, you know, the biblical dudes, they would kind of wear those dresses. And this was a, an idea that they would pull, they would kind of hike up their skirts a little bit above their knees so that they could run in battle or so that they could be agile and move for work. And remember in the 90s when we used to tie those flannels around our waist? Kids these days are doing that again, by the way. Um, but they would gird up their loins. They would, they would tie the, their skirts up around themselves so they could move for the work that they were called into or the battle that they were going into. And this is the same phrase that Peter uses. He says that you're to gird up the loins of your mind. You're to prepare your minds for action. And so how we do that as Christians is not preparing ourselves to do things to earn favor with God, but rather remind ourselves that we already have favor with God through the cross. And when we continually preach that gospel to ourselves, we prepare ourselves for action. The second thing is we don't turn back. 
We don't look back. Jesus said that we're not fit for the kingdom if we're turning our heads away from the field that we're plowing. Backwards is not an option for the Christian. We don't turn back into the sin um, that we once came from. uh, We used to go to this uh, place in South Charleston called Putt-Putt Golfing Games. Anybody remember that place? Hallelujah. What a great place of wonder that was, right? Well, they had go-karts at Putt-Putt Golfing Games, and my cousin and I got on the go-karts one time. And, you know, they always say no bumping. And I'm like, we grew up watching Dale, right? We, we understand that every good race is going to have a little bit of bumping. And, and so Jimmy, my cousin, turns me backwards on the, go-karts, uh, on the go-kart track one time. And I, that thing don't have reverse. Did y'all know that? And so I can't get turned around. And so I just go backwards on the course because I'm going back to the starting lane, you know, to do my UE and get back on track. Well, Jimmy laps me and he comes in. We're just crashing head on. And I'm the one that gets thrown off the go-kart track. And I'm like, I was backwards. I couldn't do anything about it. And, and the, the guy at the go-kart, you know, the, the 17-year-old running the go-kart track, he's super responsible. He says, you're not allowed to go backwards on the track. And that, that's, the, that's the idea of the Christian life. And this is the idea that Peter is telling us in verse 14, that we are not allowed to look backwards. And, and it's not just that it's a rule that's given to us. It is for our good that we don't look back in longingness toward the sin that beheld us from grace in the first place. Um, and, and so like with, with our own kids, how many times do we have to look at our kids and be like, how many times have I told you this? We have to tell our kids things over and over and over again. And it's because we continually want to look back. And even if you look back, Peter gives this warning that you're not to turn back and be conformed to the life you used to have. He says in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The second imperative in this in Greek is do not be conformed. Don't let your life begin to look like it used to. You see, we resolve as Christians to not return to the sin that held us captive. Rather, we are held captive to grace now as obedient children, as it's described in verse 14. You see, I'm, I'm rarely surprised when my kids are heathens, right? Amen, parents? It doesn't surprise us when our kids do something wrong. Um, rather, what surprises us is when they act holy, right? I'm like, what's got into you? Why are you being so nice? Um, now, we can't surprise God um, because he knows all things, but I, I want the pleasure of my heavenly father to look on me like, well, I can't believe he's done that almost in that sentiment, that, that I, I live a life that's so holy that it is so foreign to the way that I used to be that it, it's evidence that I've been changed. You see, your old passions are ignorance. You're not to turn back to those things. There's too much ahead of you in glory to turn back. Um, we went to Myrtle Beach one time as, as a young family. We had two kids at the time. Micah was a baby, and, um, and I had this dad plan. And, and my plan was we were going to drive through the night, avoid all the traffic, and then we were checking in the next day at like 2 o'clock at our, at our nice resort, and so we just find you know, a hotel on the way. All right, y'all ever tried to do this? and learn that that's not a good plan when you're going to Myrtle Beach. I had to learn the hard way. And so we start like three hours out from the beach, stopping at hotels. This was before online was super accessible on your cell phone. And um, we're stopping at all these places and everywhere is filled up. All the dads, you know, they had beat me to the punch and everything. So there was nowhere to stay. We had screaming kids. My wife is frustrated. And so we get about 45 minutes from the beach and I'm just like, dang, we're almost there. We're just gonna sleep on the beach tonight. I don't know what else to do. Amanda's like, well, we got kids. We got to find a place. And then just like, just like Shekinah glory in the distance, I see this black and gold sign, and it reads Economy Inn. And I was like, 
there's vacancy there. And so we go, and they got the neon sign blinking. It says vacancy. And so I go, I should have known when there were bars on the window when I paid for the hotel room. But we go in, and, you know, I pay for the room. We get the room. We go in, and I'm like, finally, we're exhausted. We go in, and I'm telling you, this was like, it looked like a crime scene in this room. It was terrifying, um, so much so my wife, we had an air mattress, um, and so we got the air mattress out, and my wife slept on the air mattress with Bella. We had a pack and play for Micah, and she's like, you do whatever you want with that bed, but that's you. I ain't touching that, All right? So, so I slept on top of the comforter. I wasn't even willing to like turn the thing down. I slept on top of the comforter, like with my clothes on. I think I kept my boots on. Like I was unwilling to, to expose myself more than necessary. We slept for like three hours and then left that place. Um, but, but the, the reality of it was we were so far toward the beach at that point, there was no going back. There was, there was no way we could go back and change the plan and come back the next day to the beach. It was just too far. We had, we'd committed to the plan. And, and the reality was there was this beautiful paradise that we had already spent a bunch of money on awaiting us. And it felt like we were in the midst of a nightmare, but we couldn't turn back. And this is, this is a great picture of the Christian life, is that sometimes we find ourselves in places and situations that feel gross or scummy or terrifying to us or just bring about fear into our souls. But God, with the gospel and when we trust in grace, is reminding us that we have come way too far to turn around now. And that paradise is actually closer to us than our home is to us. And so the, Peter describes Christians as elect exiles. This is like pilgrims or travelers. We're on our way to glory, but yet it is very obvious to us by the, by the chaos around us that we're not quite there yet. But Christian, you are way closer to heaven than you are to hell. And even when your life feels like hell, you need to remind yourself you are way closer to heaven then you are to hell. Just like we're 45 minutes from the beach, but sleeping in hell, hey, we'll be there in the morning. He says in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is a Levitical refrain. Uh, I preached this theme a lot when we went through Leviticus. Um, but the idea that God is set apart is what holiness means. He is set apart, so we should also be set apart in the world. The third thing is to fear the Lord. The book of Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, this is a difficult task for some of us to understand what fear actually is. Um, but let's, let's read about it in verses 17 through 19. Peter says, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from uh, the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the, per the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So again, the theme of exile is mentioned in verse 17, the idea that as Christians we are exiles, we are strangers, this world is not our home, we are aliens, we are pilgrims on our way to glory in this earth for a short time. Our Father is in heaven, and we're on a pilgrimage to him. And he says that godly fear is what we are called to, a reverent fear, a confident fear. And if I, it, this is a hard concept, but if I could explain it, maybe the, in the layman's terms the best way I could, imagine the skill of driving. Some of us are good drivers. Some of us are not so good drivers, right? I won't point any fingers. But we just some, some of you are bad drivers, and you know it. Some of you are bad drivers and you're completely unaware of it. That's fine. 
Um, but as an example, let's say you're a bad driver. Let's just hypothetically say you're from Ohio, okay? Um, you're a bad driver. You know you were born in Ohio, right? And, um, and so you're not confident in your driving ability. And if you're not confident in your driving ability, you're going to be a fearful driver because you know you're not skilled at that. Michael Meadows that we prayed for last week when he moved to Ohio, I'm, I'm not kidding. We sent him out of this church to go plant a church in Ohio. Like the second week he was in Ohio, he totaled his car. I'm like, well, you're officially an Ohioan now. That's just how, how it goes, right? And, um, and so if you're not confident in your driving ability, you're going to have a type of fear. But let's say you're a good driver. Let's have the converse uh, situation. Let's say you're a good driver, but you're driving in Ohio, okay? Um, so you have the reverse problem. You're confident in your ability, but you're fearful of the environment that you're in, right? It's a scary place to drive, Ohio, amen? You're scared of the cops in Proctorville. You're scared of the Ohio license plates around you. And, and so you have fear, but it's not the same kind of fear as the person that's not confident in their driving ability. You know you can drive well, but you're kind of fearful of the surroundings. And, and when we look at what reverent fear is, it's not a paralyzing fear of God in that we're, we're shrunk back and we're just like, we're not able to live out a holy life because we're afraid he's going to smite us all the time. But rather it is a reverent fear of understanding who God is, but it's a confident fear and understanding that he loves us. But yet he is so awesome and holy that we give him respect and reverence that's due to him. And so we have fear like the world does, but it's a different kind of fear. It's a confident fear. And Peter here, writing to Gentiles, tells them that they should fear their heavenly father more than their earthly fathers or their earthly traditions. You see, you were ransomed from the feudal ways of your forefathers, is what he says. And so our heavenly father is who we answer to, and he's a fair judge and he chastises those whom he loves, and we should have a fear of that. But we also understand and have confidence in the fact that he's a loving father who's full of grace and truth. Amen? The admonition to fear is in the present tense also in Greek, which means it is constant present for the Christian, but it's something that's in the here and now. When we get to heaven and we're with him, that reverence is still there, but it's not quite the fear like we feel when we're filled with sin. When we see him, we will be made like him. Now, verses 20 and 21 are in the exact middle of the text I'm preaching today, but I'm going to conclude with them, so we're going to skip over those for a minute. But those are the first three imperatives. Those are for your holiness individually. I want to shift gears, and we want to look at the second three imperatives, which are for our holiness as a church or communally. The first one is that we're to love one another. So we see that holiness isn't just something for ourselves, but holiness is something for us communally as a family. See, this is the primary mark of Christians, love. John writes that the, the, the world is going to know that we are changed and that we love Christ by the way that we love one another. You see, holiness must produce love. And unfortunately, the phrase holier than thou has become something to mean hateful, not loving. It's a phrase to refer to a lack of love. But biblically, if I'm holier than thou, that means I should be filled with love. Let's look at verse 22. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, here's the fourth imperative, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This shows us that our love is supernatural. It is something that's handed down to us supernaturally from God that we can't even necessarily explain it. My sister-in-law got married recently, and we were looking back through the pictures 
that we took after the wedding. And there's a picture of my wife and I and our family and then her sister and her family and, and my wife's parents. And they're all like right here. Their heads are all lined up like this. And then I'm like lurch in the back, just real, real goofy looking. And I looked at the picture and, and I like got embarrassed looking at the picture. And I showed it to my wife and I'm like, why don't you ever tell me how goofy I look, like how tall I am? And she's like, it's fine, honey. And I'm like, no, this looks weird. I should like bend my knees a little bit when we take a family picture. And, and she's like, she said, you can't help it. And I'm like, that's true. Um, but it still looks weird. And we do, just like we don't choose our genetic traits, like it's built into my DNA that I was going to be five foot 18. It's, it's built in. I can't do anything about that. In the same way, um, love is built into the genetic trait of a Christian. Uh, Peter references here that we've been born again through an imperishable seed, which is the word of God or the gospel. Um, So Jesus in John 3 talks about we must be born again. And so in the same way that when you're born the first time, there are traits that are are kind of pre-wired into your genetic code. In the same way, when you're born again, there are traits of a Christian that are just given to you supernaturally. You don't get a choice about it. I love when I'm free in Christ. You're not free to not love people. You're not free to hate the church. This is a genetic trait that's been given to you in your second birth. You're called into brotherly love. Y'all know what the city of brotherly love is? Philly, right? Philadelphia is the Greek word. That's a Greek word, by the way, in case you didn't know. Philadelphia is the word that's used to describe brotherly love in this passage. And it's what is given to us as a trait of our second birth. And so when people say things like, I love Jesus, it's the church that I have problems with. That's not a biblical statement. It's just not. If you want to be holy like God is holy, love the church like God loves the church. He tolerates her. He's gracious with her. He is devoted to her in all of her flaws. And so you want to be holy like God is holy, like the Bible commands you to do? Guess what? You put up with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And when they sin against you, you forgive them. And when they get on your nerves, you spend time with them anyways. And you love them with Philadelphia, with brotherly and sisterly love, because it is what God has done for you, and you have been born into his family. And the proof is given in verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You see, the gospel, he says the good news, that's the word gospel. This gospel is the word that has caused us to be born again, not of our own choosing or doing, but God acting upon us. And he's caused us to be born into a family that loves. And we're called to love, and we're called to love today, not to put it off, because the people around us are like flowers and grass that will wither away. It's wintertime here, right? We can see very vividly um, that, that the, the greenery is dying out. This is a poetic quote from Hebrew poetry in Isaiah chapter 40 that that tells us that every day that passes is one less day we have to love others. Don't waste those days. Amen. Originally, this was written in Israel, written to I'm sorry, written in Babylon to Israel during their exile to give them hope of a home that was coming after exile. But now it's fulfilled. Peter applies it to the New Testament. 
and, and the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And he says the church is going to find its fulfillment not in a physical promised land, but rather in the hope of the gospel, that we're given an eternal promised land. And so we love one another. The second imperative that we have as in community in the church is to put away sin. In light of our call to love one another in the church, to be holy, we must remove sin from among ourselves, collectively, communally, in the church. Specifically, Peter notes the removal of sin that causes relational conflict. The sins that he mentions here are all sins that cause friction relationally. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He names five things here. These things are all communal type of sins, relational sins, and they are killers of holiness in God's church. They're detrimental to the church. Now keep in mind, these last three imperatives have to do with communal holiness. That means that we're on a team together representing holiness to our region, our community, if you will. Malice could be translated as wickedness, um, and it is, a, it is a detestable thing to be named among God's saints. You know what's acceptable among, among God's saints that's commonly not seen as acceptable? Anger. Malice is not anger. Those are two different things. We can be righteously anger, angry at sin, but malice is never warranted. I had a trustee at a church one time cuss at me in the sanctuary after a business meeting. That would, that's malice. That's wickedness. That's, that's nonsense. Deceit, similarly, is a classic Christian sin. As Christians, you know what we're really good about? We're really good about not lying because we, we convince ourselves that's one of the Ten Commandments. We need to not tell outright lies, but instead we'll deceive people. Deception could be hiding things rather than outright lying about things. You see, Christians will try to avoid blatantly obvious sin like lying while hiding things or deceiving others. Again, causing strain to the witness of the church. Hypocrisy is named as well. How many times have we heard? Yeah, I... I, I love God, but I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. This is when we live in hypocrisy as the church, when we represent Christ in hypocrisy, we hurt our witness as a church collectively. Envy. Are you jealous of your brothers and sisters in the church? Do you want to see your brothers and sisters fail so that you can succeed? Do you long for what others have? And do you live in selfishness rather than generosity? Would you rather receive something than give something? That is not the way that Christians are called to live. The last one mentioned is slander. Maybe nothing else in this list harms the church as quickly and as long-lasting as slander. When we talk about a brother and sister in Christ to one another in malice, you're slandering God's children. You ever talk bad about somebody's kid and the, and the kid's mom found out about it? Like you need, and you know you done messed up because <laughs> mama bear gets like seriously mad. It's like dads will get ticked off too, but usually moms are like ferocious. But we're described here in this passage as obedient children of God. You think moms and dads get mad when you talk bad about their kids? What do you think God feels when you speak ill of his children? The ones he died on a cross to save and you slander their reputation and their name? either amongst unbelievers or brothers and sisters in the church, what do you think your heavenly father feels when that happens as he listens to you say that because he hears all things? Christians, do you really want to bring that upon yourself? We need to watch how we speak. 
Number six, final one. Imperative of holiness is we are to pursue sanctification. Within the church, sanctification is the process of growing holier. Sanctification is the process of learning more about God's kingdom. Sanctification is about increasing in our faith and our maturity in Jesus. You see, sanctification is a lifelong process that is never complete. And so communally, together, we are to pursue sanctification. And at its core, it's us becoming more like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. Now, I realize we won't be fully perfected until heaven. We understand that. But we are to yearn for that, and that means that we lean into the body of Christ, which is the church. We find sanctification among the iron sharpening iron within community in the church. 1 Peter 2, 2, he says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now in verse 3, I think maybe a better translation, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I think maybe a better translation of the Greek in verse 3 would be, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. Because Peter is writing to Christians. The imperative here is, is this is the reason for the imperative I'm calling you to. And so since you've tasted that the Lord is good, he's assuming that that's happened as he's writing this to Christians. He's saying, since you've tasted that the Lord is good, then that should lead you to a hunger for it. When Siava, who we just saw a video from, uh, when he came in um, and Edit came in, they have these candies over in Ukraine called Crazy Bees. Baker, you know what I'm talking about, man. Me and Baker went wild over the Crazy Bees. And it, the best way I could explain a Crazy Bee, I don't think we can get them in America, um, which makes it all the more something that I yearn for. But um, it's like if a dot and a gusher had a baby, that's a Crazy Bee. So it's got all the joy of the external dot, but it's got that liquid center like a gusher. It's, I mean, I could, I could go on and on about it. I could keep you all way after the snow hits talking about crazy bees. But once I tasted the crazy bees, Nick, you've had them. You know what I'm talking about. Once I tasted the crazy bees, I wanted more crazy bees. Like, I just I couldn't stop. And then the Siava brought a bag of them for my kids, and I'm like, my kids ain't getting these. I'm just going to eat all of them. They're just mine now. That's how it's going to be. And Peter uses an analogy not of crazy bees, but of a newborn needing milk for sustenance. Now, I remember when I first became a dad, wondering if we kept the receipt for Bella. Not because she wasn't cute and loving, but because she screamed all the time and we couldn't get her to stop. And I remember the first night, I was so tired. I was chasing a cat around my mother-in-law's house that didn't exist. There was no cat there. I just chasing a cat in my dreams, sleepwalking, all the craziness, because I was so exhausted, and Bella was, was needing milk and sustenance, and I was trying to feed her, and I was just didn't know how to do anything. And, and when a newborn wants milk, it, it, like the babies, they're, they're not just like, sir, may I please have some of that? Madam, may you please sustain me with this nursing no, they yearn for it. They actually demand it, amen? Like, like they, they're like, I want it and I want it now. It turns into J.G. Wentworth all of a sudden. Like, I want it right now. This is what is going to happen. They become the commander and we become their servants to get them sustenance. 
And in the same way, this is the analogy that Peter's using. Remember, he said that we're born again. So he's actually carrying over the analogy of how God has caused us to be born again, not of our own will or doing, but God has acted upon us in his sovereign love and grace, and he's caused us to be born again. And now we have tasted that God is what is going to keep us alive. God is our sustenance. His word, his good news, his gospel, his scriptures are what are going to cause us to grow up into our salvation, to be redeemed. And so we are to yearn for that. That's not even something that we should really have to cause you to do in the church. It should be something that's just natural for you, just in the way that you don't have to teach a baby to want milk. They just naturally yearn for it. They demand it. So it is with our sanctification. And so if you're a Christian and you don't have a desire for sanctification, let me call you to some serious examination because something's wrong there. If you don't want to grow closer to Jesus and be more like Jesus and you're claiming to be a Christian, something's not clicking there in your mind and in your heart. Listen to me. I don't want you to just want to be in this church. I want you to need your church. I don't want you to just want to be more like Christ. I want you to need to be more like Christ. I don't want you to just want to be holier. I want you to have a need to be holier so that people who are lost without hope can see the grace that's in your life. You see the difference there. I would submit to you the difference there is the difference between a genuine Christian and someone who's pretending. Peter says, you yearn for the spiritual milk that you grow up into salvation if or since you have tasted that the Lord is good. So I need to be on this journey of living a holy life that's pleasing to God. Now, six steps. Will, that's a lot to ask, isn't it? You're telling me I need to trust grace, don't turn back, fear the Lord, love each other, put away sin, and pursue sanctification. That sounds like a lot of steps to holiness. That sounds like an Ikea assembly book. That's a lot. Well, here's the key. All of these imperatives are natural reactions for the born-again person. They're not things that we have to train ourselves and, and convince ourselves that we need to do. It, these are natural responses to the gospel. When I tell you to trust grace, our reaction should be like, yeah, what else am I going to do? I'm such a jacked up sinner. That's the only thing I can do is trust grace. I tell you not to turn back. You should. Be, yeah, why could I turn back? Why would I ever want to go back to the sin that God saved me out of? Fear the Lord? Yes, of course, I've seen how mighty and holy he is. Love one another? Of course, I see that God saved me. I'm the chiefest of sinners. How could I not love other people? Put away sin? Of course, I want nothing to do with those things that would cause distance between my brothers and sisters and cause distance between me and God. Pursue sanctification? Of course, it is the spiritual milk that I long for as I want to get closer to God. And it all comes with reminders of the gospel. Let's finish with the verses I skipped, verses 20 and 21. In the middle of these six imperatives, Peter gives these reminders in verses 20 and 21, and he just very, very clearly reminds the reader, the exile of the gospel. He, being Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope 
are in God. That's it. That's the simplicity of the gospel. That is the reminder. And when you remind yourselves of that hope, that Jesus was preeminent, that he was foreknown, that he's always existed, when you remind yourself that Jesus is God, yet he humbled himself in the incarnation to become human, to live a perfect life we could not, to sacrifice himself on the cross, to stretch out his hands, to receive nails in his hands and feet, to bleed and suffocate on a cross, to be buried and to raise from the dead. When you remind yourselves of what God has done for you, then these steps to holiness are just like blinking. They're just natural reactions that come to the Christian. And so let's take a minute to just kind of do business with God and pray and ask him to stir up this fire in us that we would be holy as he is holy. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.